Hello, and welcome to BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast, coming to you from Vero Beach, Florida and Marion, Massachusetts, hosted by Ed Shanahy, USPTA professional and international businessman. This is the podcast that researches and looks at the club management and facility side of our business. And welcome to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm Ed Shanafee, and I'm your host. And thank you for joining us for another week of news and views from our country club, tennis, and fitness industries. This week, I'm really excited to have joining us Andy Zodin. He is the president of the USPTA Intermountain Division. But more than that, and making me very nervous, he is actually the sports talk radio host for the Mile High Sports Radio in Denver, Colorado. But he's also the creator and host of KickServe Radio, kickserveradio.com, which you can find on your Apple podcast. It's a wonderful series of interviews. I think he's at episode 150 of his podcast with great players, experts from our industry, unbelievably talented instructors, and long-serving directors of tennis. Anyhow, before I hand it over to Andy, I wanted to remind you that um, we also have a lot of posts going up at beyondthebaselines.com and that we are expanding our posts at patreon.com. Our page at Patreon is patreon.com backslash beyond the baselines, and you can support us. On that page, we have posts that include uh, research from our clubs that we've worked with, industry um, standards, things from the director of letters offer letters for year-round and part-time jobs, independent contracts, independent contractor contracts, all kinds of things that you might find helpful and uh might facilitate your business in our industry. With that all said, I'm going to hand it over to Andy. Well, this week I'm really excited to have here at the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast, uh, Andy Zodin. He is director of tennis at the Columbine Country Club out there in Denver. Uh, He's also the president of their division out there for the USPTA, the Intermountain Division. He, you might know him from the Sports Talk Radio. He's a host of the Mile High Sports sports radio show in Denver, and he's also the host, and this is how we met, uh, through kickserveradio.com. It's a great podcast. You can find it on Apple, Apple uh, Podcasts. He's been a professional elite uh, USPK uh, uh, professional since 1984, and he played his college tennis at the University of Texas. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? I'm great, Ed. Great to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time with me today. Oh, well, thanks for uh, volunteering and being here today, and um, we, we actually talked this past week because of the coronavirus. Andy was on our national town hall with up to 100 callers discussing the seasonal clubs, the smaller clubs, and how they're going to face the virus. And I just wanted to start out with that, Andy, this, the COVID-19 crisis. What's going on at your club? I, I think you mentioned to me on that day that uh, they're taking the nets down. You stopped them because – why? Why did you stop? Them? Well, they asked me to take the nets down. They thought it was the right idea to do so. I suggested that it might make more sense to just crank them down to a non-playable level because this is such a fluid situation, Ed, that one day you might be completely shut down and then certain regulations change and certain mandates change and restrictions get lifted. And the next thing you know, they're ready to open you back up and, you know, you better be ready to move fast and taking all the nets down as opposed to just cranking them down, certainly cranking them back up into position. I'm up and running in 15 minutes, taking them down and putting them back up is a little bit more time intensive and potentially cost prohibitive. So I suggested let's just 
you know, set them down to about six inches a foot above the ground will prevent some of the kids from maybe sneaking on and deciding that they're going to use it for a skate park or a soccer, soccer field or whatever other things they might decide to do with it. And so the nets are on the courts, they're rolled down to try to dissuade people from going out there and, and hopefully they'll, they'll abide by uh, what our board has not just recommended that they do, but sort of mandated that they not do, which is be on those courts right now. They just don't feel it's the right thing. Right. Right. And you know, what's interesting is, and, and, and this is what I want to focus on a bit of today and, and the Corona crisis might, might bring, bring us to a new point, which is a lot of the boards don't understand what we do as directors of tennis. And, and part of that is labor intensive work. Um, behind the scenes that they don't always see. One thing might be maintenance. You know, taking those nets down and putting them back up takes a lot of time, manpower. Well, obviously, you're in a situation a lot of times, Ed, where the board isn't necessarily, particularly in a situation like mine, uh, which is primarily a golf club. We pride ourselves on being a family country club, but but golf is, is, is our major uh, entity. And so you're going to have golfers that are board members. And we do have a couple of tennis players on there, but not necessarily guys that have been around the sport, certainly the way you and I have and and some of the folks that are in our industry. So there is a learning curve there. And a lot of times there's a little bit of give and take as opposed to uh, what those decisions are. I'm pretty fortunate that in my case, the board that I deal with is is pretty open-minded and respectful of the amount of experience that I've got and the amount of time that I've spent in the industry. So it's normally just, you know, a conversation or two, and we usually come to a sensible decision. A lot of times it's, it's demonstrating to the board or the tennis committee, what we do or wh- how you've done things in the past, bringing new ideas from a past club as a director to their attention. Um, and let's talk about your specific spot there. You, you're at a seasonal I mean, summer club, but you really, I think you started in April with ladies leagues, USTA leagues. Is that correct? Yeah. And in Colorado, you know, you've got, you've definitely got seasonality here, but you've also got 300 days of sunshine a year. So you could conceivably, there are outdoor clubs that leave themselves open year round. We're kind of like you say, mid April to mid October, USTA league season starts with their their spring mixed doubles leagues start in April. In fact, there's even a what they call a trio league, which starts in March. It's a little bit less populated than some of the other leagues. So then you go into the the mixed doubles league and then into your your 18 and over evening league play, which starts late April. And then you've got, you know, back to back to back league play uh, going going hard and fast most nights of the week and on the weekends from late April and usually doesn't shut down till about late September. Wow, that's 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 an amazing uh, for a golf club to have that going like that at, at your place. Now in March, aren't you shoveling snow from the courts? I mean, it's Denver for heaven's sakes. I'm not going to lie to you, Ed. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I've shoveled it out of my driveway, but uh, but not on the courts. And that's the whole point: is that our members are such that it's a, it's a pretty affluent club, and so we don't want to take any chances on what programming we can and cannot execute. So what I try to do is act as not just a director of tennis, but a director of information really for my members to say, look, these are the indoor facilities that you all should migrate to during the fall, winter and early spring seasons. I have excellent relationships with those clubs, those pros, those directors of tennis, and they certainly welcome the business with open arms. And the beauty of it is, is that the members of my club 
are going to go there to them, but those indoor facilities aren't going to be able to necessarily send traffic in my direction. So it's really, it's a great opportunity for the indoor clubs to be able to generate some revenue off of our members. And it's great for me to know that my members are being looked after by pros and facilities that are giving them the opportunity to play tennis year round. And then it's not incumbent upon me to be responsible for that other than to maybe facilitate those opportunities for them. Right. And how many courts do you have out there at Columbine? I've got seven outdoor hard courts and we just recently uh, added two freestanding pickleball courts. Okay. So I guess a total of nine courts overall, but, but two of them are pickleball specific. Nice. And um, do you have out there, obviously, and, and this is something that the board sees more and more as, as, as families are more and more scheduled up, they see us struggling with trying to get the schedule. So as to allow the most junior play, the most adult play with seven courts, obviously is your junior program. Does it peak at a certain time in the summer around the fourth? Like, my club, normally the peak is the, the, the week of the 4th through the end of July, maybe the first week of August. Do you have a peak like that where you're really crunched on seven courts? It's, it's pretty crunched. We've got 200 kids in our junior program, and wow. we sort of base our, our junior programs around the USTA schedule for junior team tennis. That being said, we've got kids from ages four to 17. So the four, five, six, seven-year-olds were pretty much summer only with them. So when school lets out, we'll do like a five week season followed by maybe just a little sanity break around the 4th of right. July. Right. And then we'll do another five week season that usually takes them into uh, our school years a little bit different than yours out there. We're sort of, we, we sort of shut it down right around Memorial weekend. And then they're usually back in school by mid August. So that's about when we shut the little, the little ones down. Okay. Uh, we do we do spring drills for the older, more advanced kids that are after school and on the weekends that start kind of in late April. We'll do about six weeks of that. We'll do the same in the fall after the summer season ends. So we've got specific shoulder seasons, but that summer season for me, for June and July in particular, hairs on fire. I, I feel like Peyton Manning <laughs> down by four with no timeouts, and I've That's got right. the ball on my own seven or something. Every day I'm out there just you know screaming and. Uh, trying to move people into position to accommodate lots of activity out there. Well, that's great. If, I mean, 200 kids across seven courts. Oh boy. That's, that's, that's a, uh, that's a balancing act. I, I know my, my daughter calls it. We have 10, we use a, a software called tennis bookings and um, a lot of people may or may not know it, but when I start doing the planning for the summer, she calls it the, the, the enormous puzzle because you're trying to figure out how to keep the members open play going, how to get the, the, the ratios down for the kids at certain times, when they don't, when they're not for me, it's, you know, we compete with sailing, we compete with golf, but uh, it's the big puzzle. It's the, the mass, massive puzzle. Well, and there's really, you know, there's, there's different puzzles that are being put together. I think concurrently, Ed, because uh, as your daughter says, you've got the big puzzle with just all of the scheduling. So we use reservemycourt.com, which is a great, a, a great internet uh, uh, scheduling, uh, you know, uh, opportunity mm -hmm. for us to be able to have our folks, 24 seven, be able to book a court. And so it's been a great tool for us. And uh, so you've got that, that puzzle, which is putting together, when do the juniors come? When do the adults come? When is there open play? When do we book courts really? Then you've got to make it all work with the other activities that the kids are trying to do, like the swim team yep. and the golf team and all of the other things that we offer at the club. So uh, unfortunately it's almost impossible 
for the kids to do a hundred percent of everything all the time, particularly as active as I know you and I both are, but if you can set it up to where they can do most everything, then I think you've done about the best job that you can. Exactly. You know, some kids, there's always a few kids that you just cannot get into the right group at the right time. There's always a few hanger ons that you have to figure something out for. Um, let me ask you about your seasonal job. So it's basically a five month position. And the reason where I'm going with this is, is again, to try to educate people who don't know what we as directors do, but would you call your job a year round job, even though the, the club membership probably sees you mainly from what April 1st through to October 1st, October 15th, do you believe that's a year round job? Without a doubt. I, I think we've even gone from referring to, off-season and on-season to now we refer to it as high-season and low-season. And that being, for instance, I will plan a trip where I take a handful of our members for a weekend stay and play at the Broadmoor down in Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. This last year, I had the opportunity to be invited to bring 10 of my members for a camp at the National Tennis Campus in Lake Nona. And I'm in my position with USPTA Intermountain. I plan our conference. When do we do that? We do that in mid-February. Mm-hmm. Um, doing sports talk radio, I get media creds and go out to Indian Wells for the BNP Paribas Open since I'm out there. Do I suggest that a lot of our members go out there? Yes. Then I set up tennis for them out there. So it's not all on site that I'm doing, but I am really you know, creating connectivity and activity between my members and myself year round. I'm going to meetings. I'm showing up at the club. There's a lot of planning to do. The The high season is kind of like when the NFL players are playing for real, but they're doing a lot of off-season training and OTAs. And I like to think of our season as, you know, just because you're not in season doesn't mean you're not the quarterback of the Patriots. Right. Well, in Tom Brady's case, it means that. But um, well, not anymore. Anyway, not (laughs) Not anymore. anymore. (laughs) Right. But the point is, is that you're still, you know, it's not just uh, the season ends and you just yawn and go, oh, see you in six months. It's just if you're doing that, you're getting way behind the eight ball. There's just too many things to keep up with. Our members are too you know, thirsty for activity and for information and the planning situation and the planning schedules uh, are pretty comprehensive. And so, uh, yes, year round uh, to make a short story long, definitely. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I actually love when I, when I wrap up and lock up the club for, I mean, lock it up. It, it, we, we're a tennis only club and we lock it up and, you know, end of Thanksgiving, I'm not there. I leave usually first week of October that October is, is, is my dead. That is, that is the low, low season. But then, believe it or not, by December, I'm starting to look at staffing. I'm starting to look at new programming. I'm going to a few conferences. The World Conference this year was, I think, in September, right, right at the end of my season. So, Correct. got out there for that, right? You were there, I believe. Oh, absolutely. We were the host division, being that it was in Las Vegas. Uh, obviously I had uh, a greater responsibility to make sure that we had people introducing the presenters and making sure that we were there to help John Embry and Fred Biancos and Ramona and the USPTA national staff. And I think that our, our board did a really good job with that. And uh, I had the opportunity to present uh, with Gil Reyes, as you and I talked about uh, right before Andre Agassi and Mark Knowles did their thing. So yeah, I had a, had a lot to do out there. It was a lot of fun.
let's take it on to your your kickserve radio and in your your podcast where you talk a lot in, in actuality before I I, I I did some research I went back and listened to a few you know the Mats Volander and you've had a lot of famous people on your on your podcast a lot of famous players and and instructors but what I wanted to ask you about is is the reason I founded beyond the baselines was to help and educate and assist clubs in finding the right directors keeping the right staff if, if it is the right staff and just maintaining a great best-in-class tennis program. And a lot of times I hear in the industry, oh, he's a great player. He'll be a great director of tennis. And that doesn't always sink. So let's talk about the great players. You know them better than most. You've interviewed them for radio. You've seen them you know, at different tournaments, different venues. At the USPTA, we're there with Agassi, Bill Reyes. A great player is not always a great director or a great instructor, but then sometimes it, it can – work and and what's your experience with that how have you seen a great player move towards a director of tennis position i, I think it it has a lot to do with humility i think it, it, if you are a great tennis player inherently you have no choice but to be to a large extent a pretty selfish person i mean you have to be all about me you have to be dedicated to your training to your fitness, to your diet, to your when I need to go to sleep and when I need to get up and when I need to get a court and when I need to and when I need to and when I need to. And mm -hmm. that is effectively what gets you to the top of an individual sport like tennis. No knock on any of those guys because that is exactly what it takes. It's a complete 180 to have the proper mindset toward being in primar primarily a service position, a service industry profession like the one that we're in. So think about what it takes to go from being this person that has to be catered to all the time to now you're a person that has to cater to everybody else. And I think that there are some people that inherently have learned those lessons. You just see and hear about the way certain players treat people on the tour. You just know that if Roger Federer wasn't a tennis player, he'd probably be the mater d of a, a of a of a diamond level diamond level restaurant somewhere. <laughs> just by the way he treats people and how polished he is with his people skills. And you mentioned the name Mats Vilander, and I've right. I've really noticed the same thing from Mats is that he is really in the sport because he loves the sport and he loves teaching and he loves seeing people get better. And so. When you, when you come across someone who really truly is in the sport for the love of the sport as opposed to everything that it gives them, maybe from a material perspective, from a financial perspective, from a glamour perspective, there's different things that motivate different people. And if you come across a player that is motivated by the love of the sport, the love of helping people, those are the people that I think transition very seamlessly into the industry. That does, still doesn't mean that they're going to be a great director of tennis. It means they might become a great coach of high performance juniors and they right. might want to specialize there and they might be able to impart the wisdom of what made them a great player. And, and Matt's is really, I mean, again, just an amazing example, because if you think about what made him great as a player, he wasn't the strongest guy out there. He wasn't the most physically dynamic player on the court. And this is by his own admission. If he was sitting right in here in the room, he'd be nodding his head. At, yeah, you're right. 
but right. boy, was his, was his brain a huge weapon was his ability to be more patient than you and his, his ability to win in a game of chicken, if you will, at a higher level than everyone else. And if you ask Matt, he'll tell you that the reason that he got to where he did as a player was because he felt like he practiced better than most of the other players on the tour. He practiced, uh, he had smarter practice habits. That's what he feels like was the key to his success on the tour. And if you can teach players how to, how to enjoy practice and how to embrace all of the hard work that has to go into being able to win at a high level, that makes you a great coach. And if you enjoy doing that and you enjoy being around these people, I mean, eventually you're going to get a little bit older and you're going to want to maybe take a little bit more time off of the court. And then maybe you embrace the role of a director of tennis a little bit more. And, uh, and so, yeah, as you say, Ed, not every, it's not, it's not for everybody, No, but no. for the guys that transition into it and they have had that background, um, you know, they, they've kind of got the, the tennis world eaten out of their hands. Well, it's interesting you say the service industry, because in reality, we service uh, 400 uh, shareholders a day or uh, equity members or, or even just customers or clients at a club. And we, we, we make them feel like it's their home. We, we make them feel like it's where they want to spend their time, where they want to send their families. And, and you're exactly right. The service industry element is, is something that... Um, a lot of people don't understand is that there's, I'd say 50%, maybe more of, of a, of a directors of tennis um, management time is, is dealt with, with member issues or members questions. So my question to you is, do you have a ratio or any kind of rule of thumb as to how many hours you're on the court? And you obviously have a great program out there with 200 juniors, obviously a lot of adult play, a lot of uh, adult USDA league play. What, what's your thought of the time you spend on the court versus the time you spend in the office? You know, I'd probably say I'm, I'm on the court a little bit more than most directors of tennis would probably prefer to be because I do like being out there. Now, that being said, I see my role as that of uh, – I. I because I do sports talk radio, I use these analogies a lot, but the role of sort of the head coach out on the football field. So I'm not, I'm not doing a lot of private stuff. I'm not even what I would call a position coach. I'm out there overseeing the whole program. So let's say we've got a junior team tennis practice and I've got four or five kids on, on seven courts right now I'm on seven courts. The way, right. I, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm kind of here, there and everywhere. And I'm keeping an eye on my, my assistant pros and, and the coaches. And if I see that a court needs, you know, a shot of adrenaline, I go out there and I give them what they need. If I see that the overall practice uh, is, is, is lacking in enthusiasm or something needs to happen to, to give that a little bit of a spark, I'll bring everybody onto one court and maybe give them, you know, a little three to five minute John Gruden, you know, fire up speech or do something that when they go home that day and their parents say, well, what'd you guys do at practice? Well, you know, coach Andy brought us in and kind of told us all that we've got to start recognizing when we have our opponents off balance, that we should move forward a little bit more. And you give these sort of universal messages as opposed to, and I'll talk to kids and I'll take them off to the side. If I see a kid, you know, copping a bad attitude and I feel like he can show a better effort and I'll bring him off to the side and kind of let him know that I think that, or if I feel like a kid's just 
absolutely, you know, putting in a stellar effort that day. I want to make sure that he knows that I recognize that too. So I try to coach big groups as, as the director of a program. And, and I still do my privates. Um, yep. There are certain people that like working with me, but I, I like to delegate and, and sort of oversee things from, from a slightly higher level than, than, you know, up, up real, real close. I love it. I, I I'm a same philosophy. I, I like to be the floater as we call it among the yeah. courts float, float from courts one to three. And if, if, a, if an instructor is struggling with a new drill idea, give him an idea or her an idea. Um, that being said, uh, I know a lot of directors that'll say, oh, I, I, I'm going to go teach now. And, and, and a lot of boards don't see this, but the more you're on the court, you, you insulate yourself in, and I call it the cage. And really, you can't deal with members' issues as often. Now, if you're, if you're floating, of course, you can. And that, I think that makes a big difference. If you're floating from course one to two and three, you have three instructors out there. If someone pulls into the shop or pulls you to the phone, you can go. Um, but there are directors out there that teach eight hours a day and just sit in the cage and they, they don't have, they get away without talking to members. And I think that is not conducive to being a director of tennis. No, it, it probably isn't Ed, but I think it, it's all a matter of kind of filling different holes with different people. So there are some directors of tennis that I've seen over the years that were really amazing coaches. I, I, I worked many years ago with Billy Freer uh, mm -hmm. at the Lakeway World of Tennis, and now he's been at Brookhaven since 1992, a great South African pro, and he, he coached John Roddick, uh, Andy Roddick's older brother, and uh, he would be out on the court all day long, and, and he was definitely in charge, make no mistake. This guy right. had a presence, um, but Billy had people in certain organizational and administrative roles that took on, and they were definitely – uh, subordinate to him and he knew exactly what he wanted and made no bones about that and as as his team we we knew in no uncertain terms what our role was mm -hmm. he would have meetings that were very specific to what our role needed to be so although I agree with you that more often than not the director needs to be the guy that is in a position of oversight and a position of uh, a more administrative responsibility than most of the others. You get that occasional guy that's just, you know, like a Ken DeHart or a Rick Macy or, you know, right. these guys that still, you know, they, they do a lot of time on the court because they're in such high demand, but they also know exactly who to put in the positions that they need to have to know that those other things are being looked after at, at the, at the high level as if they were looking after them directly themselves. Good. So I understand where you're coming from there. The administrative uh, portion of the position is covered, no matter whether it be by the director or by somebody he has or she has put into place. One way or the other, that needs to be, you know, looked after. And that and that pro knows, that director knows, ultimately, if something falls through the cracks, who it's coming down on, and that's yeah. him. So you got to be able to put people in positions that you can absolutely trust, and that means that you've trained them properly and you've spent the time to make sure that nothing has gone unsaid or unspoken and that there's nothing that's getting lost in translation. So when the fan, somebody's there to make sure that it doesn't hit too hard. So let me ask you a question about the back to the touring pros. Sure. Um, back to the touring pros. Have you think about this? Have you seen a pro come off the tour and act?
acclimate really well to instruction? And have you seen a pro come off the tour and not acclimate to instruction? Because instruction is very different from play. I've seen the same guy do both. And, and, and the, and, and the uh, uh, example that I'll give you is Mark Vines, my very good friend, Mark Vines, who okay. played at SMU and was a tour player, top 100 player. And I think uh, it, it was top, maybe, maybe number one in the world in 60 and overs very recently. And he's, out, he's in Naples, Florida now, a terrific guy. And I was the first pro that he hired back in 1986 Mm-hmm. Uh, or 85 in Austin. He was at the Austin Country Club as the director there. And when he started to grow that program, he brought me in. And and in the beginning, I noticed that Mark was at times a little impatient with lower level players and his expectation of the people that he coached was maybe a little bit jaded by the level of play that he was used to because he was coaching a team uh, that was being sponsored by best products. I think Brad Gilbert was on the team and a few other players of, of that level. And mm-hmm. so when Mark would, would tell you to go out and do a particular drill, the players that he was working with were all world-class. Now he had to convert over to coaching mere mortal country club players, you know, three Oh three, five men and women. And I, I noticed certain frustrations that he was dealing with again, a 30 year old guy uh, at the time, you know, that's trying to make that transition and I had never played the tour. So I went right from college to working at Lakeway with Billy Freer and Cliff Drysdale and these kind of guys. So I was in that resort business where we learned very early on exactly what our clientele was and exactly what buttons to push and exactly how patient to be and all of those things. So I was able to sort of take him aside and go, you know, I think maybe your expectation for that particular drill might be a little bit unrealistic because of x y and z and and luckily mark had enough respect for me and was open-minded enough to all right tell me more kind of thing and and because he knew that i'd worked for billy freer and he had ultimate respect for billy right Uh, and then over time i watched mark become one of the best adult and high performance junior coaches that i'd ever been around it just took a little bit of time to go from you know only seeing tennis played at such a supremely high level that you just had this this view of what it's supposed to look like to then coming down and seeing what what it's really like in the trenches that you and I have been living all these years and realizing that not everybody can do these things that you take for granted that you can do in your sleep with your eyes closed and so once he you know kind of uh, got his arms around that and his mind around that he's he's been in the business ever since and I think he's he's one of the best out there well it's interesting you 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 make that uh that analogy that someone came off the came off the tour wasn't a great instructor but learned how to become an instructor and and you uh being president of the USPTA out there um what I found amazing when I joined the USPTA and I know there's been talk about this now I've been a member I think uh nine or ten years is there isn't always a lot of, how can I say, instruction of how to be an instructor. You, they, they give you a lot of leeway. But I think as we move into this new era where you, if you're going to be at a USTA uh, um, site, you have to be USPTA certified, and there's going to be 600 or a certain number of hours that you're going to have to train to become a certified instructor, which is new, which I, I, I find fantastic. 
because I did that training unknowingly. I, I, I got on the court at 16, at 18 through college. I learned, as you said, down in the trenches with the ladies' teams, with the five-year-olds, how to start to construct a, a stroke, a, a swing pattern. Um, but a lot of the players off the tour or great players from college who've not taught before have to go through that process. And I believe the new USPTA process is going to do that. And it's going to help them become a high performance coach, help them become a, a coach at a, c a country club or a college coach. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? I think that there's been a lot of concern, Ed, which has spawned forth as a result of whether or not we have been able to answer the question, what is wrong with American tennis? And sure. that question has been brought forth because of the fact that since 2003, when Andy Roddick won the U.S. Open, we have not had a men's singles champion in a major. And mm -hmm. so as a result, the expectation prior to those years was that it was either going to be Andy winning in 03 or Pete winning before that or Andre or Courier or Chang or McEnroe or Jimmy or whoever it was. America has always sort of led the world or at least been among the leaders in the world in tennis. And now we're not considered necessarily to be that. And so why is that the case? And so they started to, to look at, at, at the grassroots, like where are the best athletes? And the determination was being made that A, that the best athletes were not going into tennis because the role models were not there. The role models were Peyton Manning and the role models were, you know, Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan and those type of people. So the best athletes were going into those sports. So that was number one. And then number two was the fact that the, the uh, ability to become a certified professional was not a particularly rigorous process. There wasn't much to getting certified. It's a couple of days of, of testing and a play test and a teaching test. And, you know, you have to be good at it. It's not, it's not easy, but it wasn't necessarily as, again, rigorous as it had become in some of the other countries. And when Patrick McEnroe went and looked at what was going on in Spain and he saw what was happening there and he saw what was happening in Serbia and he saw what was happening all around the world, um, a lot of American tennis minds made the determination that we were, we were lagging behind, that our players were too one-dimensional, big serve, big forehand. They were learning to become great ball strikers, but mm -hmm. not necessarily great tacticians. And so the sport has, has fallen behind in those areas. And so a lot of that has been, if you want to use the word, blamed on the level of coaching in this country cumulatively as a whole. There are a lot of great coaches from coast to coast, don't get me wrong, but there was some sort of a disconnect between USTA and USPTA and PTR and all of these. And there was just too many different things going on that weren't taking hold um, to our sport at a grassroots level, at the junior level. Uh, our culture was considered pretty ADD, mm -hmm. pretty immediate gratification centric. Like if you weren't if you weren't winning in a year, you should probably fire your coach. Like there was not a lot of let's stick to the game plan. Let's trust the process here. And right. so as a result, the USTA and the USPTA, and I think to a degree PTR as well, have all come to grips with the fact that we have got to re-examine this process 
and we've got to re-examine the process of becoming an accredited, credentialed tennis pro. What does that mean? Like tennis pro can refer to anyone from a USPTA master pro, uh, you know, like a Ken DeHart and some of these people that have been around forever. Um, not to say that Ken's old, I don't mean that Ken, I love you, but, uh, or you and I to down to the, down to the assistant coach of the junior high team. Is he a tennis pro too? I mean, he might be, but he might be the typing teacher who's a three, five player. So, right. so we had to sort of create some uniformity and, 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 and some really high standards in what we consider to be a tennis professional, someone that the USTA is willing to put their stamp of approval on by giving that club, you know, whether it be sanctioned events or whatever the case may be, so that people that are a little less knowledgeable, you know, i.e. board members at clubs or just tennis parents or whoever, understand that if they're dealing with a USPTA or a certified professional, that this wasn't something that they, that they figured out by learning how to play tennis at the park and went and took a test and right. now they're a pro. Like this was something like whether you and I did it over many, many years or there became an apprenticeship program, like you say, which is going into effect, which is going to, uh, it's going to change the game dramatically. I, I, I think it's been a, a long time coming. I'm, I'm glad it's here. If you look at the U.S. Uh, the PGA, they have a, it's a really tough task to become a, a golf professional. And I think we're getting there, which is fantastic. And, and uh, I'm really happy for that. Um, it's interesting. You're talking about the men's side of things. And on the women's side, I always kind of equate tennis with soccer because our men's soccer team does okay. And our men's, men's tennis players right now do okay. Our women's soccer team keeps coming home with the World Cup. And our women tennis players are just fantastic. I mean, of course, we have Serena, and she's just a legend. Um, the Tennis Channel did the top 100 players just recently, and I was like, well, Serena's got to be, you know, one or two, um, in my opinion. But we've now got Sophia Kennan. I know she was born in Russia, but she's basically American. She's been here throughout her, her growing life. Uh, we've had Madison Keys. We have Sloane Stevens. So we've had a few uh, women players. Do you have any idea why the women do better than the men? Is it stroke production? Is it just athleticism? Is it, is it schooling? I, I, I don't know. I'm not in that realm. Do you have any? I, I think, I think Ed, my best guess would be that our best athletes are going into tennis because maybe there are fewer professional opportunities for them. Otherwise you don't have a women's professional football league. You've got the WNBA and there are certainly some amazing athletes that go there, but, mm -hmm. you know, when you talk about the women's soccer team, the first thing that comes to mind for me is here are a bunch of world-class athletes that are dramatically underpaid and maybe to a degree underappreciated, but they're amazing. But think about how many different opportunities females have to achieve a dream like what Richard Williams had for <laughs> Serena and right. Venus Williams when he saw these girls playing on tennis and he saw the paychecks and he's like, okay, here, here's what we're going to be doing on you know, yep. on Saturdays and Sundays and, and every other day for that matter. So I think that the options that women have as far as what different sports they can go into where they've got, got the opportunity to achieve fame and fortune, I think tennis is probably, I would put it at the top of the list, maybe golf as well. And obviously the LPGA does quite well and they've got some amazing athletes there. But my best guess is that uh, a, a Serena or a Venus Williams, um, if, if you had – 
different sports to look at as to where women with their level of athleticism could go to achieve what they've achieved through their sport. I, I just don't see a lot of options outside of tennis. Whereas you look at, you know, the NBA and you look at the NFL and you look at major league baseball and you look at the NHL and you look at all these different opportunities that these little boys have to look at this sport, that sport. And, 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 and then you look at a league. Okay. So the NFL has what 11, 1200 players in it that all make damn good money. How many men's professional tennis players on the tour make what the 1100th best NFL player in the league makes? I mean, if you're 1100 in the world, you better go get a teaching job somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not on an NFL roster. That's a great point. That's a great point. And, you know, I, I hadn't thought of it in that, in that way, but it even backs into college tennis. I mean, the, the men uh, on the football teams, that's why we have title nine, right? Because there's so many more male athletes on the, on the, on the football teams uh, that you have to give the same to the, the, the females. So I, I think that's a fantastic way of putting it. And it, it probably is true that some of our best athletes and, and I, I know having lived in London for 18 years, if any team wins the soccer world cup, oh, it's insane. Forget and it. it if, if a woman's rugby team, if England's rugby women's team wins the world cup, it's, it's like a national holiday. And here are our women having done it. I think back to back, I, it, they're insanely great and and they are underappreciated. And I'm glad you said that. Uh, Thanks for saying that. Well, there's no question about it. And I think the American mainstream sports fan is very different than the mindset that you're going to find in Europe or in South America or in other parts of the world, because I think our attention span towards sports is spread so much thinner because of the NBA and because of the NFL and because of major league baseball and all these other sports. And yeah, we're into soccer during the world cup. You know, we're into soccer, maybe a little bit during the Olympics, I guess. Um, And, you know, and, and, and the interesting thing about, about soccer, and I think tennis is probably similar to this as well, is that boy, every little kid, boy and girl nowadays grows up playing soccer. That doesn't necessarily mean they grew up becoming a soccer fan. I think tennis is a great participation sport across the country but you look at a U.S. Open men's doubles final, you know, and it looks like there's 40 people on the stands watching the thing. But everybody plays doubles in their league tennis, and everybody's got a doubles match once a week. And yet there's just certain situations where, you know, Davis Cup is a little different, and watching the Bryan brothers play a doubles match at Indian Wells is always a big deal. But sometimes you see a, a major final, and you look at the doubles, and you go, wow, where is everybody? I, I find it a total disconnect. And I, I've written about that. I, I, you know, all of us play doubles and, and most of my club members, that's all they play. They never play singles, but they won't miss a Federer, Nadal, Djokovic match. And yet they don't play the game. And so there is a disconnect there. And then, as you say, you go and watch the Bryan brothers and there's 60 people in the stands. Um, well, it, it is a disconnect, but it, it is wonderful to watch doubles. I learn more watching doubles than I do watching singles. I think people probably that go to the tournaments and I go to Indian Wells every year. I think doubles is really fun to watch live, even if you don't necessarily know who the players are. Whereas if you're watching tennis on television, you, you kind of want to know who these guys are and you want to, like you, you mentioned three names there, you know, Nadal, Federer and Djokovic. And usually it's just Nadal and Federer. And I think the only other player that has sort of busted into that, 
that level where if he's on TV, you probably keep it on that channel for a while is Nick Kyrgios. And that's because my God, anything can happen. And I think that's been great for the game. And as much as we hate it, when we watch him obliterate rackets and curse out people in the crowd and curse out umpires and maybe even get into it with his opponent, it's still must see tennis. It's still must see television. And, and, and Nick still can bring a smile to your face when he's going good. And I think we all hope that one of these days he gets his head on straight and maybe goes out and wins a major because he'd be so fun to root for. But I think he's one of those guys like McEnroe and Connors used to be that maybe brought fringe tennis fans in, but maybe for what we consider to be some of the wrong reasons. <laughs> I, I grew up watching as a little, as a little one, uh, Nastasi was oh, you know, the bad boy of tennis. Of course. And then McEnroe, and with this top 100 of all time, you know, I've always rated McEnroe probably one of the greatest because, in all honesty, he, he could play doubles with Fleming and then the next day go out and play a five-setter. And, and we don't see that these days. And that's where the, I, I, I think there's an enormous argument there to say that McEnroe may be the greatest player of all time because he would go play the five-setter and then have to play doubles in the afternoon. Serena does it too in her defense. She goes and plays doubles with her sister. And yet, you know, we're all tuning into the labor cup once a year because it's the first time ever we'll ever see Nadal Federer play doubles, right? Um, a game that we all play, which is actually interesting. So I, I actually have to rate McEnroe and, and rate Nastasi because they, they played those, you know, their behavior was terrible, but they played both forms of the game. Well, in Mac's case, you know, you said it yourself, Ed. Here's a guy that won 77 singles titles and 77 doubles titles. Unbelievable. And the joke used to be back in those days, you know, who's the best doubles team in the world? And it was McEnroe and whoever he happens to be playing right. with that week. And obviously, most of the time, it was with Peter Fleming. Yep. But uh, but he and he and Michael Steak won, won Wimbledon. Uh, I believe one year they had an amazing match against uh, Jimmy Grab and Richie Renneberg that went like, I don't know, uh, 100 to 98 in the fifth or something, some crazy score that they had. Uh, but yeah, Mac had had those skills that I think could be applied to, you know, the singles and the doubles court, Martina Navratilova, similar situation. Right. But I think both Mac and Martina would tell you now that the technology of the sport has sort of forced the issue on where you're going to specialize, whether it be on the singles or the doubles court, because um, it's, it's hard to be great at both. It's hard to commit to both. And I think probably between the technology and the physicality of the sport, because, you know, you mentioned the labor cup as being one of the only places that you can see great singles players play doubles. But I would argue that we've seen it in Indian Wells as well, where we've seen Rafael Nadal team up, with Mark That's Lopez true. and win that title twice. I've watched uh, Federer and Warinka play a couple of times. I've watched Novak play doubles uh, with his countrymen a lot of times. And it was explained to me that, you know, they want to stay out in the desert and kind of enjoy their time out there. And if they don't do well in the singles, they don't want to have to rush off to Miami. But then there was a further argument that said a lot of these guys were getting prepared for a season of Davis Cup and why not use – uh, a beautiful venue and an opportunity like Indian Wells early in the year to get a little bit of doubles under their belt with somebody that they might have to play a, uh, an important Davis Cup match with later in the year. To wrap up, where do you see 
the USPTA going forward as as one of the presidents of our of, of the divi- one of the divisions? Where do you see it going forward, and how do you think it's going to liaise with the USTA? I know the PTR now has done a similar uh, alliance, but going forward, do you think the numbers will grow as, as, as in certification numbers, and do you think that teaching will improve? And do you think maybe there's a there are pathways for teaching, you know, because teaching a high high intensity junior or high performance junior compared to a two five ladies compared to running a program, those are three very different things. Now, running the program probably comes at the the middle to end of your career, but you may have only taken one of those pathways up. And maybe it's not, as you say, it's it's not possible to play all the doubles and singles. Maybe it's not possible for a certified pro to be teaching all the different levels. Has the USPTA thought of that, and how are they looking at that in the going forward? I think there's I think there's a lot to unpack, you know, Ed, going forward, because obviously we're, we're being thrown one of the biggest curveballs that any of us have ever been thrown in our lives, and to see what effect what we're dealing with right now in the world and, and the long-term effect that that has on mm-hmm. what sports – kids choose based on what is deemed as the safest i don't know is social is social distancing going to be something that we continue to keep in our vernacular as we go forward is that going to be something that that needs to be considered if so maybe that gives tennis somewhat of an advantage over some of the other sports um you've also got uh i think it's incumbent upon the usta the uspta and all of the bodies and all of the pros to make sure that the sport continues to market itself in a way that the game continues to grow at a grassroots level. Now, one of the things that you were asking me about that I think is important for USPTA pros to take very, very seriously, and Martin Blackman made this point at the World Conference that was in New York uh, a couple of years ago, and that was that your top pros need to be working with your lowest level players. The entry level players should not be entrusted to the entry level pros, which was the way we used to sort of do, oh, you're just starting out, you can work with the beginners. No, no, that's not the way it should work. And I will I will say, if I, if I may just kind of pat myself on the mm-hmm. back a little bit, I took it upon myself to, to spend every single Saturday morning and a couple of days a week with all of my two five ladies. I really just made that my deal. And I had 14 ladies at my club moved from the two five to the three Oh level when the year was over. And, and so I felt like that was a smart thing to do was to make sure that I was out there. And I mean, let me tell you, these ladies are there to stay. I, you know, I get out there with the littler kids. I mean, make sure that the top pros get in there with the entry level players and make sure, make absolutely certain that what you give them from day one is something that is going to, be structured and something to build on something that they enjoy something that they that they learn properly and something that takes them into the higher levels then i think you can start to farm those players out to maybe some of the younger potentially you know less experienced coaches that are still in the midst of their of their learning curve but if if we take it upon ourselves to make sure that we get in at the at the grassroots level i think that's going to be real important to the growth of the industry because there's there's two things that these younger uh, you know people need to, to to think about when they make the decision of whether or not tennis is a is a career option for them is obviously is there a potential for a lucrative career for me and is this something I'm going to enjoy 
I mean, it, am I going to, and in my case, 22 years of age, getting hired at a, at a, at a five-star resort, it seemed pretty cool to me. The guy that I was working for would come flying into the club in a 450 SL Mercedes and a gold Rolex. And he was always dressed to the nines and he was, he looked like a superhero to me, Billy Freer <laughs> in those days, you know, and I just don't know that the industry is being viewed for being as cool as I thought it was when I was a kid. And I think that there's a lot to be said for sort of creating that cool factor, but also more importantly, making sure that the people that come into the game come into the game and that there's not a lot of attrition that we don't have them in there for one summer. And then we don't see them again because there's a lot to compete with Ed. When you and I were kids, there was a few sports uh, we weren't competing with the video gamers and all the mm -hmm. virtual this and virtual nope. that. And so you got to be really, really good at what you do to keep someone's attention anymore. That's a great point. I, uh, I, as you were, as you were answering that, I, I think about when I was 18, 19, 20 teaching and where tennis and teaching tennis has taken me and think about where it's taken you, all those places that you visited yep. Indian Wells, Miami, Las Vegas just recently for the World Conference. Where, wherever you have been is be, due to the tennis and the industry. And it's, it is a fun industry, and I, we have to sell that. And you make that very clear that it's going to take you to great places and, and, and meet wonderful people. Well, it's taught me a lot about how to become a better salesperson. It's, it's taught me more about how to deal with adversity by, by being in the sport of tennis. You know, tennis inherently as a sport uh, throws you a lot of curveballs. It throws you, you know, a lot of adversity. And I just wrote a letter to our, to our members out here, to our pros in USPTA. And I just said, listen, nobody's got all the answers right now, but luckily we're, we're luckily we grew up in the sport of tennis where adversity is something that we deal with on a daily basis. And what do you do if you're down a set and a break, you know, you, you take a deep breath, you come up with some sort of a, a sound strategy and you break back. And if, and do we, do we break back and do we win every match? No, but I, I see us as a group of people that are going to compete our butts off till the very end of this deal, which we really have no choice but to do. But, you know, having just had Matt Svelander at our conference, I used him as an example. I said, now's the time to play our best version of Matt Svelander tennis in our lives, which is be patient and outlast this thing and don't try to be a hero. Right. I mean, that's how Matt's won all of his, all of his titles was by being more patient than the other guy. That's exactly what we need to do at the highest level that we've ever done it. Play defense and play percentages. You better believe it. Yep. Well, Andy, it's been great having you on. Um, thanks so much. Uh, I'll put in the show notes uh, all, all your biographical material so people can look you up. That, and, means, they're gonna, uh, that means they're going to see all my losses. Wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll definitely put in their Kirk, uh, kick serve radio. So there you go. So they can go hear you interview uh, some of the greats of our game, which is really fun. I'm, I'm going to keep going back there for more. But thanks for coming on and, uh, and stay healthy out there, will you please? You too, Ed. And, and thanks for all you're doing for our sport. And, con and congratulations and, and best of luck with Beyond the Baseline. It's, a, it's a, a great service for all of us that you're doing. And I appreciate you having me on with you today. Thank you for listening to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm your host, Ed Shanafee, and it's a pleasure bringing you every week news and views and great guests from our tennis and fitness industry. You can always reach me at BeyondTheBaselines at gmail.com or by phone at the office on 
1288. Please do visit our website, beyondthebaselines.com, and on our site there's a link to our Patreon page, which has even more information for you and your club and your facility in our wonderful industry. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.